I'm Rob. And I'm Nate. And welcome to Rob and Nate Record a Podcast. We've had a little bit of a hiatus. A little bit of a hiatus. It is it is April-ish. Yeah. 2020. As uh, most of the world has experienced the hiatus mm-hmm. in these types of activities, uh, for group activities anyway. Uh, we've both been in kind of quarantine and finally getting back together to get things going again. Uh, but today it will be the start of our uh, Robin Hood theme month. Yeah, and we started with the adventures, uh, the adventure of Ro- adventures Robin, Robin Hood, Hood from 1938. Yeah. yeah, we thought it would be fun to do a property uh, like Robin Hood, uh, some iconic character that everybody knows that has been done many times, and just kind of pro- pro- progress through a series of films centered on that character. And so this month the plan is to do uh, at least four uh, Robin Hood films, and we're starting with. Uh, one of the most iconic, the one that kind of sets the visual motif in film for later uh, Robin Hood movies, and that is 1938's The Adventures of Robin Hood. And this was your first time seeing it, Rob, right? Yes, it was. Um, We have a new contributor with us, too. Uh, My wife and I picked up a new puppy named Scout, so you may have heard a little woof from him, and he may try and uh, interject his thoughts Mm. at times, though don't take it too seriously because he slept through most of the movie. Mm Yeah, this was my first time seeing this 1938 Errol Flynn version. I've seen parts of it previously, but not in its entirety. Like, I'd seen that that scene when he's in the castle for the first time mm-hmm. uh, and meets Prince John. I'd seen that scene before, but I had not seen the entirety of the film. Mm-hmm. This holds up remarkably well for a 1938 film. It's a fun film. I've seen it probably around half a dozen times, and... I think the last couple maybe wasn't on the same energy level, but it's really fun to see with people. Yeah. And one of the ways that I've seen it is I saw it about a about a year ago. On that on, Megaplex on, thing? On the Megaplex thing, yeah. Yeah. And that was fun. It was fun to see it with a crowd. Uh, but yeah, it's fun is really the word for this movie. It's what it was built to be, just a, a, a romp. The merry men are very merry yeah. in, in this movie, and it's got a beautiful... Uh, score. It's got a beautiful Technicolor photography. Well, I was going to comment on how colorful it was for a 1938 film. Yeah, they spent extra money on this doing the Technicolor process, which was not cheap. Yeah. And uh, they decided that this it would be worth doing, and it definitely shows off, especially the costumes. Uh, I don't know how accurate these costumes are to what people were actually oh, wearing yeah. in the 12th century, but it's kind of this yeah. iconic storybook version of what they wore. Yeah. But in terms of the storyline, this is more historically accurate or reasonable than some of the other adaptations, mm-hmm. um, in particular like the Kevin Costner one, uh, which we will be watching at some point, but I'm curious to see how that one holds up because from like a historical standpoint, it's not mm-hmm. super close. But And this film incorporates um, title cards throughout to give uh, background information, historical yeah. context which was a real throwback to silent filmmaking. That wasn't something that you saw that much of in a big studio film in the 1930s. Yeah. Except maybe at the beginning, uh, but they they cut the action several times throughout to give us oh, yeah. some more backstory. Uh, one thing real briefly that I guess maybe you can uh, give some backstory before we jump into the plot too heavy is I found it interesting when the movie ended, that logo at the end of the movie, the WB... Uh, what was the other part of it? First National. A WB First National film. I'd never seen that logo before. Uh, interesting. You mentioned some of the... Yeah, First National was a studio that Warner Brothers had taken over. And for a brief period, they actually released under both the uh, 
First National and the Warner Brothers uh, logos, and then eventually became Warner Brothers First National, and then eventually they just dropped uh, the First National uh, from the company title. That's interesting. Some of that stuff is kind of interesting film history, but yeah. doesn't have any real impact on the film. But yeah, it was interesting to see that logo at the end of the film. So, Yeah, there's a lot of interesting... Um, historical factoids and stuff about the film i wrote down a number yeah go uh, for that it i thought we'd share and then we'll, we'll talk more about the, the film itself but the adventures of robin hood was a big deal for warner brothers they put a lot of money into this movie and i think it shows on screen so they uh invested about two million dollars in this film which is around 36 million or so uh hmm. in present day uh it made just under four million so that would be 70 something million in today's box office which Sometime, wouldn't be considered a resounding success well, by today's you know, standards. That's, that's the thing is sometimes it's almost misleading to that's not the word I'm like 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 you can adjust for inflation but it also kind of misses something yeah because uh, I think if, if if a film like this were released today with the amount of money that was spent well not not even that but it seems like if, if you were to make the equivalent of this today and it was an equivalent hit it would be much more than that 70 something million dollars oh yeah yeah because more and for one thing more people would see it there was a heck of a lot more people in america now yeah and there were in 19 and more movie going americans yeah yeah or or at least until last month yeah well yeah but uh the film uh won the second oscar for best original score uh the score was written by an austrian man named eric wolfgang Korngold, uh, he was principally composed for the stage and for symphonies, but he did uh, work on films. He would go back and forth from Austria, uh-huh. and he had a project that he was going to be working on that fell through in Austria, and so they were able to get him to do this score, and while they had him in the United States, uh, the Germans annexed Austria. Korngold's Jewish, his family was Jewish, and yeah. so he uh, convinced Warner Brothers to get his family out. And then he, uh, I guess he signed a contract with Warner Brothers at this point, and he uh, directed a number, or did the score for a number of films for them. The Sea Wolf, uh, and uh, King's Row, which is a film that, that I really love, uh, which we may have to do a podcast on, on yeah. sometime. It has a very great score, and this is a very memorable, rousing, yeah. uh, jumpy score. The film was, uh, as we mentioned, shot in Technicolor. Um, Technicolor was its separate company, and they had personnel from the Technicolor company that had to be on set the entire time. And, huh. uh, apparently, that was something of a pain, but again, the quality of the color is great. It's very vivid. Uh, it holds up. It was a three-strip process, so there's three layers oh, yeah? uh, that constituted the Technicolor and as a result, it fades much slower than other color processes, uh, which is why if you see a film with a Technicolor process from the 1930s, it's much more vibrant than some of the lesser hmm. uh, color processes uh, that were available at that time. That's kind of interesting, and it's, I mean, that becomes a little bit less of an issue in today's standards, mm-hmm. and once you digitize a film, of course that stops, yeah. but yeah, it's, I mean, it was a long time coming before they digitized any of these properties. So the uh, film was, uh, you'll have noticed, has two directorial credits. Yes. Uh, the first director was a man named William Cayley, uh, who was a quite capable director, uh, worked uh, very consistently. 
uh, but he wasn't quite up to some of the action sequences, and so they brought in Michael Curtiz uh, to handle those. Uh, he was much more versed in, in that kind of thing. He'd been doing spectacle films since the silent era. The idea to do the film grew out of the success of A Midsummer's Night's Dream, which 20th Century Fox did in about 1935. <laughs> and James Cagney's in that film, and they were thinking about a vehicle for Cagney that would have some literary uh, yeah. merit to it. And they're like, well, Robin Hood seems logical. So the problem was that Cagney uh, had a two-and-a-half-year dispute uh, where it just did not work. Really? For... Actually, this was a Warner Brothers. Yeah, it was a Warner Brothers picture. I was at yeah. 20th Century Fox earlier. Uh, he had a um, this basically walkout, and so they're like, "Well, we don't have Cagney, who would be a good Robin Hood." And that was answered by the success of a film called Captain Blood, uh, which made Errol Flynn uh, star overnight. And so they decided to reteam him with his co-star from that film, uh, Olivia De Havilland, who was 21 years old at the time of filming here. She's a, a beautiful She's young lady. She's a very beautiful woman. Uh, one of the uh, two Fontaine sisters, her sister Joan Fontaine, was also an actress. Uh, they were both, uh, I believe, both won two Oscars each. Hmm. Uh, so they're, they're very beautiful and they're talented. Yeah. Uh, the rest of the cast uh, has a lot of great characters, uh, actors in it, but the uh, standouts probably Basil Rathbone, uh, who plays Sir Guy of uh, Gilborn, who is a character who's not included in all Robin Hood adaptations. Yeah. Uh, Rathbone is best known for playing Sherlock Holmes in a series of films in the 1940s. Claude Rains plays Prince John. Uh, he's probably best known as uh, the uh, senator, the senior senator in uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Yeah. Uh, he was also in uh, Lawrence of Arabia and a bunch of other films. Mr. Skeffington's a personal favorite. Uh, and then... Of all the different supporting actors, uh, and there's many that are worth uh, calling out, including uh, Alan Hale Sr. as Little John, but yeah. probably the funnest performance would be Melville Cooper as the uh, Sheriff of Nottingham. <laughs> uh, he's just such, yeah, he's just such that character. He's, uh, I could get him, but uh, I couldn't find him. Yeah, he's just such a braggart with so little to to brag about. Yep. Uh, the film was shot both at the uh, Warner Brothers studio. Uh, in uh, Los Angeles, as well as uh, exterior locations at the Studio Ranch, uh, Bidwell Park in Chico, California, or at, it was at Bidwell Park in Chico, California, and the Warner Brothers Studio Ranch, which, which was in Calabasas. Huh. And you can tell the scenes that are shot in the studio, um, and you can tell which scenes use painted backdrops, but they're, they're really well done. Mm -hmm. I mean, even by today's standards they're decent looking backdrops yeah so but yeah you can tell you can easily tell which scenes were shot in a studio and have a painted backdrop yeah. but you do get a sense of as you said of the exterior shots oh yeah that, um you were you were commenting while we were watching it about how old some of these trees looked well i was commenting on the actuality of sherwood forest mm -hmm. like when you actually get into sherwood forest you know they were talking about what did they call that oak do you recall what i'm talking about um, they were talking about one of the oaks that they were using as a gathering place, but the actual Sherwood Forest has trees that are over, you know, over 700 years old. Mm. Um, Sherwood Forest, I mean, just those oaks in those in those forests are just tremendously old, and they did have some wonderfully large trees in this film. I didn't pay a, a huge amount of attention to what type of trees they were, but they did have some some nice trees in the film. Mm. So, but yeah, the the film follows you know traditional Robin Hood plots very a bit. 
you know, from franchise to franchise. Yeah. They're, they're, and the details is where you have the differences, but they all have the same basic structure. Yeah. Yep. And Robin Hood becomes an outlaw by one means or another. Usually almost always seems to be pretty consistent that there's something involving, you know, the killing of some sort of animals. Uh, it seems to be pretty, pretty clear. And uh, he's accused of taking... The, the king's the king's deer the king's deer or this, king's animals this and, line he has later on where he's talking about him and the married man we have nothing to eat save the king's deer yeah yep um but he becomes an outlaw and starts fighting uh prince john and uh in this film Sir guy. guy of gisborne uh and of course the sheriff high sheriff of nottingham who uh, plays differing uh, uh prominence in various versions mm-hmm. of the film he's kind of the comic relief character here. in this film he's one of them yeah and a lot of the traditional prince uh, there's like three or four comic relief well yeah well in um, this uh, version. among among the bad guys is the comic yeah. relief bad guy and a lot of the duties that in other versions would fall to the sheriff are uh, taken over by sir guy yeah yep who's really kind of the, the big heavy yeah um even though prince john is there he's not there as much there's a period of the film where he says he's going on to some other community he's just not in the film yeah. for a while and uh, he's a little feminine. He's uh, prissy. It's it's, yeah. it's an interesting portrayal. I, I mean, I, I I'm sure we'll see this more as we go through these versions. But yeah. the portrayals of, of uh, Prince John usually are kind of of that type. Yeah. And I wonder how much of that That's is based accurate. historical, and yeah. how much of that is kind of slander that has worked its way into the historical record. Yeah. From what I understand, it seems to be relatively accurate, but we'd have to do more specific research mm-hmm. that I don't know if either of us will end up doing. Yeah. Made, you know, the relationship between Robin Hood and Maid Marian as is pretty consistent. Maid Marian at first can't stand Robin Hood mm-hmm. uh, and grows to fall in love with him. I thought that the interaction, uh, there, an interesting part of this film was how Maid Marian ends up becoming arrested, you know, for her part in the plot mm-hmm. and things like that. She's very proactive. Oh yeah. Yep. And she's being held, which is what leads to the final interaction, you know, and when Robin comes to try and save her. Well, when well, I guess she's trying to save Robin, and the band comes to save them both. So, but yeah, it's kind of interesting and, and fun to watch. And What did you think of um, both the archery sequence and the sword fighting? I actually thought that archery sequence was, was really good. The only other version of this film that I recall that has that type of an archery sequence for the actual archery battle is the animated version. Well, that's the thing about it, is you look at the way the, the targets and the little uh, things that help propped up the targets look like they do in the yep. 73 Disney animated. And even the disguise yeah, is, uh, very, is, yeah. is obviously was adapted for the stork disguise yeah. uh, in the Disney version. Yeah, there are a lot of similarities between this and the Disney version. Um, but... That archery scene, I was quite impressed by that whole archery battle scene. That was really quite an impressive scene. Some of the sword uh, battle scenes, I mean, obviously they put a lot of time into choreographing these. They were choreographed, which wasn't the most common thing prior to this film. If you go back and you look at clips from the the Douglas Fairbanks Sr. Robin Hood that was Uh made in the 20s, it's all just he's improvising. It's like there's, there's no real art to it and here they spent some time to choreograph these sequences and especially at the end where uh that big scene prin- yeah. prince uh king king richard the Lionheart has, has sneaked back in yeah and his forces and uh which is principally the merry man and uh king john's forces are fighting in the uh 
the great room and the castle. Yeah. There's a lot going on there. Well, and there's not a lot of really big, broad views of that room, but the few that there are, I mean, it's impressively choreographed for that extras. many people. Yeah, there's a lot. There's yeah. better, probably about 100 people in that scene. Yeah. And then when Prince uh, Sir Guy and Robin start to kind of sort dual of light, off to the dual side. off to the side, and they have yeah. this great sequence where they kind of go behind the camera and they project these Their shadows. giant shadows on this pillar of the castle, and it's, it's awesome. That was beautiful, yeah. Yeah, it's it's pretty uh, sophisticated visual technique for this Yeah, time. the only critique I would have of this, which is a very minor critique for, for a film of 1938, was it was also fairly obvious that a lot of the swords that they were... Have the chore their choreographed fencing scenes were using were quite flimsy swords. You saw mm -hmm. a lot of swords bending and... Mm -hmm. and De deforming quite heavily in in the scene, but that's a very minor critique. That scene is also referenced indirectly in the movie The Rocketeer. Oh yeah, uh, you'll recall the scene in which uh, it was was a cliff. Was that the name of the? It's been long character? enough since I've seen The Rocketeer. I wouldn't be able to answer but that. But the, the the Rocketeer knocks over some of the the set pieces of his girlfriend's uh, shoot. Uh huh. And it basically they're making Robin Hood. Okay. It's, it's uh, I mean, the set's very similar, the costumes, the dialogue. Yeah. And Timothy Dalton plays a character in that film modeled off of an Errol Flynn type. <laughs> and Errol Flynn, Errol Flynn's an interesting man. Um, you know, this is the first film I can recall for sure seeing of an Errol Flynn film. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of curious, are you very familiar with his filmography? A little bit. Um, he is Tasmanian. Really? Yeah, he's about the only famous person to ever come out of Tasmania. Huh. He came to Hollywood. His first role, and I forget the name of the film, but he played a corpse. He just had to stand still at this, or lay still in this film. And uh, they didn't know necessarily, I mean, he's a good-looking guy. They didn't necessarily know what to do with him at first. And then after the success of uh, uh, Captain Blood, uh, he became the swashbuckler. And that's a lot of what he did. And then he kind of segued into westerns and uh, other films. He had a predilection for underage girls, which okay. caused him uh, numerous legal problems. He had a, a, a marriage under false pretenses towards the end of his life that they made a film about called um, The Last of Robin Hood, which stars Kevin Kline as Errol Flynn and Dakota Fanning as his underage, uh, I think, second or third wife. Wow. Yeah, there's this whole other side uh, of Errol Flynn that's not... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just Not glancing at his filmography real quick, and some names that stand out is 1936, The Charge of the Light Brigade. You have already mentioned Captain Blood from 1935. Uh, Adventures of Robin Hood comes along in 38. Dodge City. Uh, the Private Lives of Elizabeth in Essex, which is a uh, Queen Elizabeth, Elizabethan film uh, with uh, Betty Davis. Uh, Dodge City, which was a Western... He did again with De Havilland, uh, as was Santa Fe Trail, which was, kind of, even though it's called Santa Fe Trail, it's really about the start of the Civil War. Yeah. Well, and then a property that we've mentioned uh, recently to each other, Edge of Darkness from 1943. Thank Your Lucky Stars from 43, which I know is another Western. Adventures of Don Juan from 1948. Uh, that Forsyth woman, I want to say Greer Garson plays the Forsyth woman in that. The story of William Tell. Uh, which was a short. Uh, he did a number of shorts that were filmed off of his boat. He had a a yacht uh, that he used to take people out on. And then one of his very last films, 
uh, is Cuban Rebel Girls uh, from 1959, which was a pro-Castro film he made before Castro was uh, openly communist. Oh, yeah. Um, this film, though, won three Oscars. Do you know which three Oscars it won? I cannot remember. The um, score is one. It was. It also was nominated for Best Picture, but it did not win Best Picture. But it won for Best Art Direction, mm-hmm. Best Film Editing, and then, as you previously mentioned, Best Music Original Score. Yeah, it's a great looking film. Yeah. So, but yeah, that was kind of interesting. I could. I mean, I'm not familiar with a lot of films from 1938, but I can certainly see how this would have been nominated as a best film. It would be hard to argue that, I mean, any movie that holds up that well, I mean, what are we, almost 80 years? Yeah. You know, later. That's a long time. You know, it holds up really quite well, so, yeah. I believe the film that won the best picture that year was uh, You Can't Take It With You, which was a Frank Frank Capra yeah. comedy. Yeah. But yeah, that was, it was quite a good film. I'm glad we saw that. Again, I am surprised for a, for a film from 1938 how well that holds up. Um, there was no moment of boredom. There was nothing I didn't enjoy about that. Film. The pacing's really good. Yeah. yeah, there was nothing I didn't enjoy about this film. So, yeah, it's a good start for the month. We'll see how some of these subsequent Robin Hoods hold up. Yeah, I'm kind of curious. That I'm already a little bit concerned that this might end up being the best of the four films that we're planning to watch this month. But we will. We shall see. So, yeah. Any other comments for this week? No. Okay. We'll be back shortly with our our next installment in Robin Hood month. And we're back. And guess what we forgot to do? We forgot to rate... The Adventures of Robin Hood. Yeah. How would you rate Adventures of Robin Hood? I quite like The Adventures of Robin Hood, but I've seen it a number of times. Probably a half dozen times at least. Have you? And so that kind of wears it down a little bit. So it's I'm, I'm not probably as enthusiastic as I was you know, the first time I saw it. I'd, I'd still give it three and a half stars. I was going to say, I'd give it a solid three and a half stars. Like, that's... That's a really good movie, and I'm as we mentioned already, I'm afraid we've already peaked on this month's viewing. On the 10-star scale, I would give The Adventures of Robin Hood 8 stars. Yeah, probably have to give it an 8 myself. Yeah. That's, that's a really, really good, For what really it is, solid it's film. really solid. Yeah. So uh, this week, uh, we shifted ahead, jumped quite a ways forward to the 1991 Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Starring Kevin Costner. Um, you said it had been quite a while since you've yeah, seen this film? Yeah, um, so the, I've only seen it in, prior to tonight in its entirety one time. Yeah? So, uh, really? Just one? Yeah, just one time. So I started it once before. We had mentioned on another podcast that the, the ward I was in would occasionally do youth sleepovers. And yeah. so we started it on a youth sleepover, but I fell asleep probably halfway through it. Yeah. And so I didn't actually see it in its entirety until after my mission in probably 2002 or 2003. Hmm. So I didn't remember much at all of this movie, which which is kind of nice because you get surprised again. Yeah. There was a couple surprises. In this. I have seen this film... I would dare to wager I've seen this film likely at least a hundred times. I don't get how you can see movies a hundred times. Well, the one that I would, two in particular that I would say intentionally and willfully of my own volition watched a hundred plus times would be Mm. So I Married an Axe Murderer and The Dark Knight. Mm. The Dark Knight, I used to, well, in fact, to this day, I will like when it comes to exercising. Like the other day I got on my... um, well, with all the health restrictions going on, I didn't feel like riding my bicycle on the street. Mm. So I put my bike on the trainer and uh, put in headphones and turned on a movie, and that's an easy way to kill time on a 
treadmill or a bike trainer or something like that. Mm -hmm. But I went back to an old standby and I turned on the dark night. Mm -hmm. Um, but that was the only way I could ever get myself to run on a trainer was I just turn on the dark night with headphones in and focus on the movie and forget that I was on a treadmill. Mm -hmm. But, uh, the reason that I've seen this movie so many times is when I was quite a bit younger, my youngest brother was obsessed with this film. Uh, You don't recall this story? No, I, I think I recall some other films that he was obsessed with. Um, well, he was obsessed with two in particular, mm-hmm. this one and E.T. Mm-hmm. And so this would have been, this particular story occurred in the year 1997. All right. Uh, the 1997-98 school year. Mm-hmm. And which means my brother would have been about eight years old. So it's funny that an eight-year-old was so fascinated with a PG-13 movie. Mm-hmm. But my parents had no objection to my brother watching this movie. And my brother would watch this movie on repeat. And when he turned on this movie or E.T., if the, when it was on, you could not reach my brother. He was just so enthralled in the movie and wrapped up in it, you couldn't reach him. Well, there was a particular Saturday morning I used to mow my uncle's lawn out in, in uh, Sandy. And uh, we used to make wagers on how long it would take me to ride from my uncle's house out in Sandy to my parents' home in Cottonwood Heights. Mm-hmm. And I was getting progressively faster, and my uncle upped the stakes on our wager quite a bit, and also upped the uh, reward to me making the time, you know, whatever time wager we'd made. And uh, so, I mean, I was really cranking on my bike, and uh, I was coming down Highland Drive, for those of you who are familiar with the Salt Lake area, just a little, I was going northbound between Creek Road and Bengal Boulevard, and I wrecked my bike uh, quite severely. Um, an ambulance was called. I broke a telephone pole. I had to be taken by ambulance to the emergency room. I was in the emergency room for the next uh, somewhere between 12 and 14 hours. They thought I'd broken my neck, broke my arm, broke my femur, um, broke my wrist. Uh, it was it was quite a mess, and I had to be taken by ambulance to the hospital. So some good Samaritan had pulled over and used their cell phone, which in 97, 98 would have been an expensive phone call Mm -hmm. and called my mother while my mom was at home because my dad was gone to a scout camp. And, uh, so my mom was at home alone with my youngest brother, but didn't want to take my youngest brother to come and see me being put in an ambulance when she didn't even know the extent of my injuries. Knew it was quite serious, but didn't know the full extent. So my mother to entertain my brother until my dad could get home from the scout trip, put in this movie, locked the door and left Mm -hmm. because she knew if this movie was playing, my brother wasn't going anywhere for a couple hours. So she comes to the scene. They put me in the ambulance. She got there about the time that they were loading the stretcher in the ambulance. They had all my various appendages and splints. And my neck, I was wearing a C collar and I was on the gurney and they were loading me in the firefighters. They were carrying me across the construction zone. The ambulance couldn't drive across the construction zone. So the firefighters had to carry me on a backboard across the construction zone. So they could put me on the gurney and put me into the ambulance. And uh, my dad gets home from the scout camp and comes into the house, uh, finds my brother home alone, which was very unusual. And uh, so he goes into the family room, pauses the movie to ask my brother where, where my mom is. And she, he simply tells her that Rob had to go to the hospital. She went to go meet the ambulance. Takes the remote from my dad, pushes play. That's all my dad's doing. <laughs> so my dad um, put the tailgate down on the truck because he was hauling all the scout gear told everyone to get out of the way, backed up onto the front lawn and stomped on the brakes so all the scout gear slid out of the back of the truck onto the lawn and took off and went to the wrong hospital first because he assumed that 
I would have been somewhere in Sandy. So he went to the hosp- Alta View Hospital out in Sandy. Mm-hmm. Couldn't find us there. So then he went to Cottonwood Hospital, which is where they had taken taken me because we were closer to my parents' home than my uncle's house. And yeah, it was uh, quite the experience. So I ended up coming home from the hospital with both arms and slings. So I had to do that old, you know, I'm a 16-year-old, but my mom has to take my pants up and down and wipe my butt thing mm-hmm. for you know, a couple of days until I could use at least one hand. And yeah, it was quite the adventure, but yeah. So that was, uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves made it so my mother could attend to me in the hospital. Indeed. <laughs> but yeah, so we played this house quite a, this movie in my house, quite, my parents' house quite a bit mm. because of my brother's obsession with it. Well, there's certainly worse movies to have on the constant cycle. Yeah. But I, I mean, I would have to ask my, I'll, maybe I'll ask my brother before this month is up. But I'm curious how many times he would say that he's watched this movie. But he probably watched this movie twice a day for months and months and months. Mm. So, yeah. he And then it became E.T. He was obsessed with this first and then E.T. Mm. We so, would think it would be the other way around. Uh, he saw this one first for whatever reason. Mm. But yeah, so I've seen this movie quite a bit. I have not seen it past... I've only... Past the year 2000, I've probably only seen it maybe three or four times Mm. um today might be the fifth at the most so but yeah i thought it held up reasonably well i think it does yeah it's 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 fun yeah it uh is less true to the traditional robin hood narratives Mm. um it's interesting that they still fit in uh, a number of the iconic imagery but not necessarily on robin hood like i noticed this was the first viewing where i really reconciled you know, Robin Hood in the Scarecrow outfit, you know, or whatever from yeah, uh, yeah. Adventures Robin Hood. This time they have Will Scarlet wearing that outfit, but they still fit it into the movie. Mm. So I guess real quick before we get much further, another interesting connection to this film. In the very beginning of the film, when Robin Hood gets it, gets back to England, and uh, what's the young boy's name? The one that's in the tree. Do you remember yeah, what yeah. I'm talking mm-hmm. about? Anyways, the young boy's up in the tree for having killed the deer. And the soldiers are chasing him up into the tree. Those dogs that uh, tree him are Afghan hounds. And the actual dogs used in the movie belong to a guy who lives about six houses down the street from my parents. And those dogs, they terrified us as kids. Because when they stand on their hind legs, they're quite tall. And so he had a taller than usual fence. And the dogs would stand up and stick their head over the top of the extra tall fence. He had like a... Yeah, it was taller than usual, so it must have been over six feet tall, and they could still stick their heads over the top of the fence. Do you recall how the the dogs got in the movie? Is there a there's got to be a story? He he, uh, that's what he did with the dogs was they were in movies. Oh really? Yeah. So I mean, they were in a number of movies, but we remembered it because they were in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, mm-hmm. and so everyone in the neighborhood remembered those dogs for that movie alone. So yeah, a couple interesting connections to the film. So indeed, yeah. What other uh, initial thoughts do you have on the movie? Uh, well, you know, it's it, it's good. The, the thought that I had, and I, I remember expressing this thought the first time I saw the film all the way through back in 2002, 2003, is Robin Hood in this movie is an American. Yeah, yeah. And, and Christian Slater, too. Yeah. But we find out later that there's a little more of a reason for that. But they, he just, he's, he's an American. Yeah. And they don't uh, even attempt. To they don't even attempt. Uh, just in his bearing, obviously in his voice, but in his bearing and his attitude, and yeah, 
you know, there, there's little uh, moments like when uh, Little John's wife, and that's an interesting thing, giving Little John a family in oh, this, yeah. this movie. I kind of like that. Yeah. And Little John's wife wants to be involved in rescuing her son when the Sheriff of Nottingham's kidnapped her son and is going to kill him along with some of the other uh, merry men. Uh, and she wants to go along, and Little John doesn't want her to. And uh, Robin Hood says, okay, you go here. Yeah. To, to the wife. It's like, hey, he's a progressive man. Yeah. This is, this is early 90s progressive Robin Hood. Well, but it fits the narrative that they use in this one of, you know, he's really doing more to band them together. And if, if they want to defeat the Sheriff of Nottingham, uh, you know, our good uh, villain, Alan Rickman, then they all, not just the men, everyone mm. must band together. So poor Alan Rickman. I mean, he's a great villain, but you almost feel bad for him. Almost always playing villains. Mm. I mean, between this and, uh, Die Hard, I grew up, man, that Alan Rickman must be a terrible human being. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because growing up, you you know, you don't... Well, he just had this persona, and he could kind of do the... I don't think sniveling's the right word, but yeah. you know what? The, the, the Alan Rickman persona oh, yeah. was not the most heroic person, and he was kind of conniving. And the first thing that he did, uh, not as a movie, but he was in, uh, on screen... Yeah was a British miniseries called The Barchester Chronicles, which is an adaptation of a couple novels, some 19th century English novelist, I'm forgetting who. But he plays a, uh, I want to say a bishop, who's, he's not evil, but he's pretty full of himself. And, I mean, he establishes right on, right on in this inaugural uh, screen role the persona that would come to define him for the decades that he would work in the industry yeah there are the occasional exception obviously oh, yeah. he got a redemption arc spoiler in the harry potter films eh, a little bit a little bit of one yeah yeah there's there's some debate on that but the film's got a good cast obviously kevin costner in the lead uh the actress who plays maid marion mary elizabeth uh Mastrantonio? Mastrantoni, I think. Uh, she's um, kind of largely forgotten. After uh, that movie, yeah. Uh, she was, um, you know, she, she was in The Abyss. Uh, she was in Scarface. Uh, she was in The Color of Money. Uh, you know, she was a working actress. She was a, a leading lady for, for a time. And I, I can't recall the last time she's entered my mind. She's actually still doing a lot of TV acting. Uh, she recently was in the T NBC series Grimm. Um, okay, yeah, yeah. She was Kelly Burkhart. Um, she's also been in the TV series The Punisher. And she's evidently in a current TV series called Blind Spot. Have you watched any of that? Uh, Blind Spot. I've heard of it, but I haven't ever watched any of Is it. Is that... Um, what's her name? Jane... Something Alexander? I don't know. She plays a character named Madeline Burke in that. Jamie Alexander. I am aware of it. You got uh, Geraldine McCune, uh, who plays the uh, the old hag. Uh, she's probably best known for playing uh, Miss Marple in a uh, long-running series uh, across, the, across the pond. Uh, of course, Alan Rickman, we've already mentioned. Morgan Freeman. Uh, it's kind of an interesting part for Morgan Freeman. There's an element of shoehorning. In, in getting him in there, they have this 
one of the things that's interesting about this version is the extent of the backstory. It's almost like a Robin Hood origin film. Yeah. Even though all Robin Hood films are kind of Robin, they have to be. Yeah. But this goes in more depth about how he became Robin Hood than any other version of it that I can readily think of. I mean, it, it takes, well, it also takes a little bit different spin. We're actually going to see this spin a little bit in our uh, next uh, version of Robin Hood as well, uh, where Robin Hood, instead of being, you know, in already in England, he's gone to the Crusades. That becomes another theme in one of the next ones we're going to watch. And then is returning home when something happens. So that that's a little bit of a variation, but but yeah, nothing... The way they go about it is a little bit different. It's not exactly clear exactly where King Richard is in this one up until the very end of the film. You know, they kind of ignore King Richard mm-hmm. until it's convenient at the end there's of the film. No, there's no Prince John here either. Yeah. Um, and interestingly, Sean Connery's appearance as King John is untitled, is uncredited. Mm-hmm. So, I mean... Well, he was yeah. there for a day. Well, yeah. Yeah. Not not necessarily a whole day either. Yeah, but how many of movies does Sean Connery appear in? <laughs> I mean, that's what that's what makes it effective is yeah. that uh, you know, he's just there at the end and Sean Connery brings with him all the Sean Connery baggage. Yeah. So, even though he's on screen for two and a half minutes, we feel like we know him. Oh yeah. I want you to repeat a line you told me in this movie about Morgan Freeman. I'm trying to remember. Prison Oh, yes. Uh, so Kevin Costner, Robin Hood, Robin Loxley, Loxley meets uh, Morgan Freeman, Morgan Freeman uh, in Azim. Azim in Turkey. They've been captured. Uh, he's Kevin Costner had been captured in the Crusades, and he's in prison with Morgan Freeman, and they help each other escape. And I expressed the thought that, man, if, if I'm ever in prison, and Morgan Freeman's in prison too, I'm gonna I'm make friends with Morgan Freeman because he's yeah. he's a good prison prison buddy. Yeah. Well, one kind of interesting side note again. This is tied to the beginning of this film, but clearly prison taught them no lessons. Because what were they in prison for? Stealing food. Uh huh. And what are the, what's the first thing they do when they get out of prison? They steal food. Yep. Yep. So prison taught them nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think uh, I I thought the uh, payoff of Azim, you know, paying his life debt and saving Robin of Loxley's life there at the end of the movie, it was quite. I remember being quite impressed with it when the movie first came out. Watching it now, it was a little heavy-handed. Mm-hmm. I because I remembered so little of it, and there's that early confrontation just after they get back in England, where uh, Robin's yelling for his friend to help him when he's outnumbered like six to one. And I thought that maybe they kept saving each other's lives back and forth, like his recurring gag, which they could have easily done. Yeah. And I get why they would hold it off to the end uh, to give it that build up. I think either way would have worked. Yeah. Uh, kind of another uh, thing related to the plot of this movie that I was interested in and kind of want to take, get your thoughts on is uh, how they changed the role of Guy of Gisborne in this film. Yeah, he's, uh, he's a cousin of uh, Sheriff Nettingham. Mm-hmm. He's kind of the the number two. Is the lieutenant? He's he's not a pleasant man. Uh, he doesn't have all that much to do in the film, and he is eventually dispatched by his cousin. Oh, relatively early in the film. Yeah, yeah, probably around the halfway mark. Uh, I thought it was probably closer to to, or at least in terms of feel of the film, it felt like it was the first third, but maybe it was closer to the halfway mark. Mm-hmm. But 
I mean, as compared to other Robin Hood adaptations, Guy of Gisborne is generally more of a central character. Then even, well, as we saw in the last version, uh, Guy outranked the sheriff, and yeah. now the that relationship is reversed here. Yeah. I was going to mention just a couple things about the, about the film and the filmmaker. Uh, the movie was directed by a man uh, named Kevin Reynolds. Uh, Kevin Reynolds, uh, he's worked semi-consistently over the years, uh, but probably the films that he's best known for, at least that he would probably best known for, would be the 2002 Count of Monte Cristo. Oh, yeah. Which I recall uh, you liking. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I guess he got along well with Kevin Costner because he directed Waterworld. Oh, okay. Uh, and I don't think directed a Kevin Costner movie after that. I think I probably have, at least not having seen it in quite a few years, I probably, at this moment in time, have a more favorable uh, memory of Waterworld than you probably do. Mm. Or at least that's the impression I get. So I remember enjoying Waterworld when I saw it on the big screen. And people were, I remember being asked, like, oh, did you see Waterworld? Yeah. Did you like it? Oh, yeah, it was good. Was it worth all those millions of dollars? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Yeah, I was looking at some uh, numbers here. The estimated budget for this film was $48 million, which seems relatively modest for a film of this size and scope. Um, Opening weekend numbers in June of 1991, it brought in $25 million, but its U.S. gross was $165 million. That's good for the early one. Impressive. what, What would you guess at its worldwide gross? I said 165 million uh, domestic. This yeah. seems like a film that's going to have some legs internationally. I'm going to guess somewhere over 300 million. Worldwide. Yeah, it was approaching 400. It, uh, wow. Hit 390 million 493,908 dollars was Indeed. its worldwide gross so. and some change. Yeah. Yep. Uh, another thing that people remember this film for, and which I remember so ubiquitous, which is the love song. The yeah. love theme, uh, you everything know, I do, I do it for you, from Brian Adams. Yeah. Uh, it was it was everywhere. Yeah. Well, and I personally, I'm a, a Brian Adams fan. From the album Waking Up the Neighbors, it's the one about the, my first real six-string. Man, I love that song. I played oh, that. Summer 69. Summer 69. I played that song on repeat for years mm-hmm. and years and years. In fact, I still listen to that from time to time. But yeah, Brian Adams, you know, he was he's a great artist. Mm-hmm. I, you know, looking at, back at this film now... You know, it was early 90s, but it's kind of interesting that it ended on an 80s power ballad. It is an 80s power ballad, yeah. You know. Uh, and which is actually not in the film. It's hinted at a little bit in, in one particular scene. They, they yeah, use they play the melody. some excerpts, yeah, the melody from it. Uh, but it's not played until the closing credits. Yeah. Which I think is probably right. It would be weird to have that song in the middle of the film, given the, the 12th century setting. Yeah. But it was nominated for Best Song. Which, that was uh, its only Academy Award nomination mm-hmm. for this film. So, the, the music itself, the score is pretty good. Uh, you can tell there was some, at least some collaboration with Adams on it. Uh, but the score was done by a gentleman uh, named uh, Michael Kamen. Uh, Michael Kamen was principally a director or a scorer of action movies. He did uh, Die Hards and he did uh, Lethal Weapons. Uh, he also did Mr. Holland's Opus. Yeah. Uh, so he wrote so he Mr. Holland's has, Opus. He yeah. actually has some level of talent in that. It's a, it's a, and this is a good score, too. It's yeah. a memorable, rousing score. I'd, I'd say it's not quite on the level of the score of The Adventures of Robin Hood. Yeah. But it's a solid score. 
Um, you know, something that was interesting to me, especially for a film of the early 90s, this film had a fair number of strong one-liners. Mm-hmm. You know, just one line, you know, quick punch lines and, uh, you know, quick-witted moments that wasn't characteristic of the early 90s. All right. You know, and yeah, it was none are standing out to me, you know, long term or would make, you know, the memes of today. Um, but I was impressed by how many good one-liners there were in this film. I hadn't recalled that part of that. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts on this film? Well, one thing I thought was interesting about it is how religious it is. Uh, and I say that with a little bit of an asterisk. Uh, just religion is a major part of this film. Not that the oh, characters yeah. are super religion, but religious, but you know, you've got uh, Morgan Freeman playing a, a Moor, playing a Muslim. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got a lot of references uh, to Christianity and the Christianity of the characters. I mean, a lot of them were in the Robin, at least, was in the Crusades, so he yeah. obviously had strong feelings, uh, at least to a degree. Even though a lot of this. His joining was motivated by uh, a family a dispute. family dispute, yeah. which is interesting because in the other versions of Robin Hood, you don't really learn a lot about the other Locksleys. Uh, the next version we're going to watch, you're, you're going to you're going to yeah. Have you not seen the Kevin the uh, Russell Crowe? I version? have not. Yeah, you're going to learn. That one gives the the Locksleys a lot of backstory. A lot of backstory. Yeah, so it could almost be a WB series, the Locksleys. <laughs> and then they just stretch the Robin Hood backstory out over five seasons with a, yeah. with a lot of sleeping around. Yeah. Have uh, you watched the BBC series Robin Hood? Uh, I have not. I've seen a few episodes of a, a, a Robin Hood series that was made in England in probably the 50s, 60s. Okay. A little half hour ones. But you're talking about ones from probably the early 2000s? Um, let me pull it up real quick. And then also on the the religious elements of this film is the Satanism uh-huh. and the occult practices of um, the sheriff and his uh, the crone that turns out to, to be his mother. In fact, we got a couple interesting family reveals uh-huh. in this movie. Uh, they kind of parallel because you get the, the reveal of Robin Hood and Will Scarlet being his brother and then the reveal of the sheriff Nottingham and the, the witch lady being his mother. Uh, Which and I, I wonder if that wondered... was structured as an intentional paralleling. Well, I honestly even wonder if that was real or if she was just telling him that. Just telling him that to get what she wanted. Yeah. Uh, she seemed, I kind of believe it was real. Yeah. It, it, it explains, uh, explains a lot of her actions. Yeah. Uh, but the presence of Satanism in this film uh, makes me wonder, is, is this movie uh, a satanic panic film? <laughs> this would have been that right around been right, right around the, the end right of that yeah you know the early 90s but yeah kind of yeah one kinda. of the podcasts i listened to she's actually writing a book on the satanic panic which is what made me laugh uh-huh. so but yeah i uh, know there's a um bbc Amer- or bbc um version of robin hood that aired from 2006 to 2009 i've heard uh, of it stars jonas armstrong gordon kennedy sam trotton it was a it, uh, Lucy Griffith plays Maid Marian. Mm-hmm. It was a pretty good series. It started off quite strong. It kind of lost its way a little bit towards the end, um, but the first couple seasons of that were were really quite pleasant. And I enjoyed that quite a bit. You might mm-hmm. want to check that out yeah. at some point. Um, in terms of Robin Hood stuff in it, and especially a serialized Robin Hood, it did a pretty good job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, should we do some final thoughts? Yeah. What do you, What would you rate this film? This is almost the definition of a three-star movie. 
Yeah. Uh, there's there's certain weaknesses in it. We watched the extended version. It's too long. Yeah. I, I uh, picked out a couple scenes that I uh, could tell were in the extended version that weren't in the original. And yeah, there's there's occasional issues with pacing, but it's got a really strong final act. Yeah. That final act kicks butt. Yeah, it's very crowd pleasing. It almost was a little bit long, um, but it's it's very well paced. It's got a good tempo to it. It maintains itself pretty well through. Um, and then they they don't drag out after the final action scene too long. Yeah, you, you have the quick. little you have the little uh, the wedding epilogue, the wedding. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, I I'm I'm kind of in the same boat as you. I think this is a, a solid three star film on the ten star scale. I'm trying to decide if I would give this any higher than seven stars. Seven or a six? Yeah, somewhere right in there. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, on IMDb, its uh, aggregate rating is six point nine stars. So kind of in that, we're kind of falling in the same range as seemingly most other people on this. But um, yeah, I mean, the 1999 Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, I'd say there's not a reason to avoid seeing this film. Um, You mentioned we watched the extended version, which was two hours and 23 minutes. Uh, The original, it's it's saying this is two hours and 23 minutes too. Hmm. So I don't know why it was saying we watched the extended. It felt long. I was expecting this thing to be about two hours. Yeah. So, but yeah, it's it's a solid film. Um, it holds up reasonably well. I don't think it ages poorly necessarily no. in any particular way. Um, yeah. it, it's it's it, you could show it to uh, a thirteen year old kid. Yeah, and uh, there wouldn't be issues with pacing. I don't know that I'd show it to very many eight year olds, but that's mm, a different yeah, story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At least not letting them watch it a hundred plus times. Mm. <laughs> but that's life. So. Any other thoughts on the Robin Hood Prince of Thieves? No, it's worth seeing. Yeah? Okay. We will see you soon uh, watching the Russell Crowe version of Robin Hood. And then you want to tell them, well, I guess we'll tell them what we're wrapping up with later on. So, mm. yeah. See you shortly. So something I put together, I, mean, I was aware of this before uh, we watched the last movie, but I, I put it together afterwards is that the Sean Connery cameo at the end is a reference to the fact that Sean Connery had starred in a James or a Robin Hood movie, almost said a James Bond movie, which is true. He starred in several James Bond movies. But he starred in a Robin Hood movie in the 1970s called Robin and Marion, uh, where Audrey Hepburn in, the, in 1976. 1976. So having him show up as Richard at the end of uh, Prince of Thieves would be like if... Uh, Errol Flynn had survived and shown up as Richard at the end of uh, Sean Connery's Robin Hood. Yeah. And uh, today we did not get a similar Kevin Costner cameo Cameo. here, though that would have been all off in terms of age range. Well, here's an interesting note that I was going to mention. Different context of mentioning the same Sean Connery film, Robin and Marion from 1976. Do you recall how old Sean Connery was in 1976? Been in his mid forties. He was forty four when he filmed that when he made that film, uh, which was released in nineteen seventy six. And Russell Crowe surpasses him as then becoming the oldest person to portray Robin Hood, because Russell Crowe was forty five in this film. Indeed, Russell Crowe has aged relatively well. Mm. Although I have read on numerous occasions that the criticisms of him being the oldest Robin Hood caused him to do some serious crash dieting right before this film. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's fine. I don't know. 
There's, I mean, there are criticisms of this film that... Um, Which, by the way, is the 2010 Robin Ridley Hood. Scott Robin Hood. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, there are valid criticisms of this film. Uh, but I thought it was relatively well uh, well done. Robin Hood traditionally would be Much a little bit younger. Uh, Which was actually younger. kind of an interesting take on it to have uh, a Maid Marian also in her... She got to be around 40 at the time, right? Uh, I don't know how old she was at the time that they filmed this. Let me see if I can figure that out real quick. She would have been right 51 now, so she would have been 41 at the time that they filmed this. Um, yeah, she would have been in her 40s, although um, Kate Blanchett can always pass younger. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also liked that they were not trying to make Maiden Marion overly flattering in this film. Um, she was a more, there were in a lot of ways, I thought that this was a more realistic portrayal of a lot of aspects of Uh a Robin Hood story. For me, the Russell Crowe age thing worked because, you know, the tradition of the Robin Hood story is Robin Hood has been off on the crusades with Richard, the King Richard, the Lionheart and is returned from the crusades and then becomes an outlaw. Well, so to have a, such a young Robin Hood being the outlaw and all of these other films is kind of, I don't know whether to say a misnomer or, you know, do you, do you understand what I'm getting yeah, yeah. at? But, and you, you had said that uh, Scott had conceived of this or approached this revisionist take on Robin Hood as kind of an origin story. So it is also kind of odd that it's an origin story, but it also features the oldest Robin Hood. Yeah. Well, and there was, I'm trying to find the sourcing on this real quick, but there there was supposed to be a sequel to this film that was scrapped because the studio wasn't happy enough with the box office numbers. Yeah, it really sets up a sequel at the end. Uh, talking about box office numbers, uh, this film um, cost about $135 million to make. It grossed $321.7 million at the box office. So there would have been a modest profit because when you talk about a contemporary film, you got to basically double its budget for the advertising. So if you double its budget, you're talking about $270 million altogether spent on the film. See, the figures that I saw, including advertising, estimated mm-hmm. around $200 million. $200 million As the budget. As the budget. Okay, yeah. including advertising. And then the, I saw the same... I had the figures I was looking at was the same $361 million mm-hmm. in receipts. Because right. the, the doubling is just kind of a, a rule of thumb point of reference. But that's you know based on today. This is 10 years ago. Uh, so, I mean, that's still a pretty handsome profit of 120-something million. Yeah. It's not bad, but it wasn't good enough for, uh, for the, the studio to greenlight uh, that sequel, even though I was genuinely a little curious about what the sequel might look like at the end, even though my overall perception of this film is not as rosy as yours. Yeah, I, I, I mean... Like I said, I can see some of the criticisms of this film. Um, I guess Russell Crowe took a lot of heat for his accent in this film, mm. um, which I can see to a certain extent. But I mean, it, I guess there was criticism of Kevin Costner's accent in the previous Robin Hood. Mm. Um, so I guess it's not unreasonable for people to criticize Russell Crowe for it. But I thought his accent certainly was better than Kevin Costner's. Mm. One other little interesting tidbit that I read on IMDb that I'm going to share with you that may worsen your viewing of this film. Apparently, Ridley Scott has said that his the only previous Robin Hood movie 
that he thought was any good was Robin Hood Men in Tights. Oh, really? That's a that's resounding. I'm what, really glad he's making a Robin Hood movie. Well, it might explain why he felt the need to go back and to redo, you know, kind of a revisionist origin story of Robin Hood. I thought for what it was for a, you know, for an origin story, I thought it was reasonably well constructed. I mean, Robin Hood doesn't become an outlaw until the very end of the oh, he, film. He doesn't freaking make it the 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 Robin Hood that we know in this film. That's a little bit of a spoiler. But which we're definitely going to get into because you can't talk about the film without it. But he didn't actually make it to, to Nottingham till like an hour into the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's working his way back from the crusade. So what is better and what is worse in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Kevin Costner being able to escape the Middle East and return to England in a matter of five minutes with some implausible and filming errors in their escape from the prison scene or... Russell Crowe taking an hour to get back to England. This is worse. You think so? Yeah, it's definitely worse. I thought the first hour of this movie was pretty abysmal. It was plotting and kind of miserable. See, but there are other films where they take their dear sweet time Didn't work establishing here. plot and character development that you love. Yeah, there, there was. I mean, there was a little, little, little bit of it. I mean, you've established your Godfrey character who is... And other renditions of Robin Hood is your guy of Gisborne, uh, and his relationship. They could to have done this in half an hour instead King of an Philip. hour. I think if they'd done it shorter, you'd be criticizing the lack of plot of character development for some of the auxiliary characters. I don't think a lot of these characters really need very much development. Yeah, I mean that's a valid criticism to some extent. So I just it I, is a long film. I really had a hard time with the first hour of this movie. I kind of I hated it. Yeah, I was just like ugh. Yeah. So this is this movie is about two and a half hours long. We saw the director's cut, yes, which is nominally longer than the theatrical. Yeah, cut. I mean, comparing it to the theatrical, because uh, when I purchased it, I got both. I only noticed very few differences. There was only a couple scenes. Oftentimes, that were longer. it's surprising how few differences there are between a director's yeah. cut and a. A lot of the so, in fact, a lot of the differences that I noticed um, in the director's cut were in that first hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that Return from the Crusade scene, there's some scenes with uh, Richard the Lionheart that are extended uh, in the director's cut. And so that might be some of the stuff that you disliked so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, Richard the Lionheart has this, uh, not Richard the Lionheart, but uh, the, the French king has this line king about Philip. King Philip about how he could take London with an army of cooks. Yeah, And then a cook is the one who uh, shoots an arrow that gets... Uh, Richard kills Richard, gets him in the neck. In the French countryside? In the French countryside. Yeah. One of, I believe, three different neck-related deaths in the course of the film, which I kind of liked, because yeah. that's different. Yeah. I One of the things that gives license to this version of Robin Hood is the fact that Robin Hood is such a myth, and there is no true, in, liter, you know, in literacy, no set true Robin Hood story. There's no definition of what the Robin Hood story is. There's the Robin Hood legend, but there are so many variations on the Robin Hood legend. It it gives credence and it lends itself to variations within the, mm. the film types, which we've discussed in yeah. just the three films that we've already discussed in the or this being the third film that we were discussing in this series. But it allows itself and lends itself to so much variation that I thought this was kind of an interesting take to establish. Robin Hood through a different means. And in terms of establishing Robin Hood, there are parts of it that make sense. Right. 
I also like this version of Friar Tuck. Indeed. Yeah. Well, I mean, Robin Hood's obviously a mythic story. Mythic stories lend themselves to reinterpretation over time to meet the needs of the, the period uh, in which you see it, which is why, for example, Marion in these various incarnations gets uh, increasingly feminist, increasingly bold and independent. Well, and that also has to do with the times in which exactly. the were made. Because, because this is uh, 12th century England filtered through whatever the release year yeah. of the of the film is. In fact, I thought the weakest part of this film was Marion leading the band of lost boys into battle yeah, at that, the conclusion that, of the film. That, that uh, conclusion did not really work for me. you bringing everybody together on the beach for the reverse Normandy, especially that Nottingham is in the freaking center of England. There's no way, even with the two days they gave themselves, <laughs> that all these characters could get to the, to Dover in no time. And it's just... it's. One of a number of uh, logical problems in the film, which I can overlook to a certain extent, but it, it this one bugged me. Yeah. Well, now, uh, quick uh, Marion-related imagery hmm. between Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and this Robin Hood, but at different points in the film. Hmm. Did you catch the one scene in which you have that connection between the two? Uh, refresh me. Uh, it's, at the, it's at the beach scene when Marion shows up. She's the warrior in black. Mm-hmm. As opposed to in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, when when uh, Robin of Loxley comes to call, mm-hmm. she's the warrior in black. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, yeah they're both. That's interesting. Yeah, right. but I I thought that that end was ridiculous. Even though I did generally enjoy the last hour of this film, so it's, so it's uh, two and a half hours long. So you cut that in the fifths. The first two fifths, look. The third fifth starting to get its legs. For the most part. I liked the last hour or so of the film. I did have issues with it. One big one, I think, was Robin Robin Hood has uh, repressed memories, which he gets back because he's not really Robin Hood. <laughs> he's Robin of Longstride. He's Robin of Longstride, whose father was kind of a reformer. Uh, who, he was who, a stonemason. He was a stonemason who tried to create this kind of bill of rights. So a lot of this Robin Hood story is set up as like uh, the origin story, not just for Robin Hood, but for the Magna Carta. That's where this whole thing is going to end, is in the Magna Carta, uh, 15 Which is where or a so lot of, years after the events of this film. Well, but that's where a lot of the Robin Hood stories actually come to culmination, whether it's during Robin Hood's lifetime or after. That's kind of where that With entire building. movement uh, culminates. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of agribusiness in this one. I made a <laughs> comment, they kept talking about grain and mead and taxes there it, it was a lot what did of you the think? economics of it was was there in more than in any other robin hood version we've seen so far and the sense of the economic stress that the peasants uh were under is and even even the the landed lords up in the the north and middle of england it's a lot more evident you feel it here yeah where you didn't so much feel it in the 38 robin hood or even so much in the 90s robin hood with kevin costner yeah now, let's talk about some of the um, common characters in Robin Hood, uh, Hood movies, and let's kind of compare them to this point, because I have a feeling we're not going to be able to make direct comparisons after next week. All right. So let's uh, make comparisons to, to Marion of Loxley's. Uh-huh. Uh, what do you think of Marion throughout the three films we've watched thus far? Well, as already mentioned, she has a progression. This is not to say anything uh, bad at all about Olivia de Havilland's performance in 38 i think it's a great performance i think she's lovely uh and she's she's spunky yeah but 
you, you get more overtly feminist types uh, in the 91 and then in, in the 2002. Yeah. I think uh, in this film, Mark Strong is playing the role of Godfrey. I think we could agree he's your guy of Gisborne in other mm, film yeah. or in other variations. So what do you make of his contribution he's in this film? He's probably the meanest. Well, he's the meanest one of the three that we've seen. Yeah. Well, which goes back to 1930, the 1938 vision, version. Guy of Gisborne is a more prominent character in that one. The sheriff is kind of inept. Yeah. Uh, Whereas in 91, he's just kind of a henchman yeah. of the sheriff. And the sheriff goes back to being inept in this one after being the primary villain in 91. Yep, exactly. That was actually where I was going to go with that. Um, what do you think of Prince John, who was completely missing from the 91 Yeah, he version? was completely missing from the 91. He was Claude Rains in 38. The, He's probably a little more interesting here. It took me a moment to realize this was Oscar Isaac. This is Oscar Isaac before anybody knew who he was in a pretty major part. Yeah. Uh, his uh, wife, in quotation marks, his uh, Eleanor, French lady. Eleanor, or no, sorry. Um, Leah. Isabella of Angu- Angouleme, Leah Sado. Yeah, who's uh, in the, the previous Bond, Bond film. film and is going to be in the, the new one that, that got delayed. Yeah. Um, now, what about King Richard, who, again, was only briefly in the 91 version, actually untitled? Uh, what about the role of Richard the Lionheart throughout these? Well, I mean, Richard the Lionheart is lionized in the first two versions. He's almost a mythical character. It's like he'll bring back truth and justice. And in this one, he's he's not as humanized. bad. He's not as bad as John, but he's not great. Yeah. Yeah, he's humanized, and it puts uh, some spin on... On the crusade, that third mm. crusade. So, yeah, yeah. Let's see. This is the only one with Eleanor, Eleanor of Equitain, so we'll skip over that. What about Friar Tuck? You really like this Friar Tuck? I was I was fine with him. Yeah. Do you have any preference for a Friar Tuck in oh, any of the three films? Probably the original Friar Tuck. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, that was a good one. Uh, Sheriff of Nottingham, we've kind of touched briefly on that. Mm. Uh, I think I like I think I like the weak sheriff of Nottingham personally. Mm, yeah. So, um, Little John, in this version r- played by Kevin Durand, who is a lead on a, a show I watched on FX called The Strain. Yeah. There's a number of actors in this, including Scott Grimes as Will Scarlet, who is like I know that guy from something. Yeah. In fact, we had seen a uh, Scott Grimes film already when we talked about uh, Critters. Yeah. Uh, him being the uh, juvenile male lead in Critters. Yeah. I was going to get to him because I kept joking about him being Will Scar- I, Scarlet. I didn't realize, because they never actually, I don't recall them calling him by name in this film, so I didn't realize he was credited as Will Scarlet. Mm-hmm. I know that. I, I think they do once. Yeah. But I think maybe they... If they do, they just call him difference. Will. They don't yeah, call him Will exactly. Scarlet. Yeah, You kind of have to piece it together. So what do you think of Little John? Little John was fine. I think he's better in 1938 in this version than he is in 1991. Uh, the 1991 Little John was probably a little over the top. The um, the 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 triumphant, the 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 Friar Tuck, the the Little John, the Will Scarlet. There's probably the least of them here. They're probably the the least central to the story. They get the least screen time. Well, yeah, you gave a lot arguably more the least interesting. Too. Yeah, I mean, well, with introducing. Um, Max von Sydow as Sir Walter yeah. of Loxley, which is yeah, you know, you, we had to see we had to see his get to see Pops Loxley alive for yeah. a while. Yeah, uh, it was fun to see him in that. Yeah, and then uh, Alan Doyle played Alan Adale, uh, and then 
Sir Robert Loxley was Douglas Hodge, so um, that's kind of a little bit of a twist, not having Robert, because, Sir because, Robert Loxley because be... This, yeah, because, again, the, the story is uh, Russell Crowe is in the Crusades. He does he says something pisses uh, Richard off, and so he's in the stockades for a while, but when Richard is killed, somebody lets him and his uh, immediate uh, associates out. His uh, band of merry his men. His band of merry men. Uh, he stumbles upon a dying uh, Robert of Loxley... Who who was returning the crown? To returning England. the crown, yeah. So uh, he takes over that role. Takes over, uh, takes you know they take the knight's clothes and they take that role of returning the crown to England. Their intention is to escape the boat before they actually get to England and be free. Um, but it takes straight to London. They get a little drunk and mm-hmm. oversleep and have to deliver the crown to London, which sets up much of the plot of yeah. the remainder of this film. But yeah. they they take what uh, what uh, reward they get, uh, uh, and they originally intend to divide up. But um, Russell Crowe decides to honor the agreement he gave to the dying uh, Robert to return his father's sword to his father. His father, in a kind of sneaky sitcomish way, decides you're going to take the place of my son. Which my son's been gone for ten years. No one's going to nobody's going to anyway. recognize. And they and if um, I say you're my son, and she says you're his, her yeah, everybody's going to believe us. Yeah, and William Hurt's in this too as basically the prime minister, the king's hand. Yep. Uh, and they William all Marshall. just they all just kind of know who he really is, which I, I didn't maybe would make more sense on the second viewing, but they all kind of into it. Oh, he's the, actually the son of this other guy who we really liked. That was, well, they the don't actually put it in killed. together till later in the film, because, um, when Robert Longstride or Robin Longstride, uh, appears at the Loxley, uh, property and is introduced to Walter, Sir Walter of Loxley, uh, and introduces him, himself as Robin Longstride. Loxley reacts and says, are you, are you trying to like pull one over on me or something? You know, he, he gets upset at first when he says that he's Robin Longstride. And it's not until uh, Marshall comes to William Marshall comes to visit uh, Sir Walter Loxley and tells him this is Robin Longstride that we find out who his, you know, what his actual origins are. Mm-hmm. So, but when William Hurst, uh, sorry, William Marshall comes and meets with uh, Walter Loxley and is told that he's Robin Longstride. He reacts instantaneously as well, just like like Walter Loxley did. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we should, we should talk a little bit about the Lost Boys. Okay, so we always have the reoccurring theme of the haunted forest in Nottingham, mm-hmm. and that everyone's afraid of the forest. And in this instance, it's because the Lost Boys, the boys of the families who are struggling in the villages, who or whose have, parents have gone off to the Crusades, yeah, who have taken off into the woods and are surviving you know just barely in, by thieving and and hunting and they're the wearing semi-elaborate animal masks of i presumably of animals that they've killed mm-hmm. um but yeah it's a weird little touch yeah i mean it works in the kind of in the middle of the film when marion is out in the, the woods trying to help them she's essentially their social worker yeah which she is in every rendition mm-hmm. of this film that part of it's more believable and you know robin longstride obviously makes a connection there and you know he starts helping to train them things like that it it does start to set up for the the merry men in the woods later on yeah uh and it gives them a base of operations to go to after the king goes against his own word john has promised in order to enlist the help of these northern gentlemen uh in fighting the incoming french after he finds out that his best friend 
Mark Strong was really a traitor and he was really yeah. working for the French. So he needs to get support real quick, even though people don't like him because him and his brother and his father taxed him too much. But he's like, I, I will pledge to sign this charter of rights if you fight for me. So they're like, we'll go all fight for you. But Robin gets all the credit. He's the one that the French essentially surrender to. And John, that hurts his ego. And so he decides... Well, I thought that part of the battle scene was actually really entertaining, that John is just fighting his own men. Yeah. And they're literally just keeping him at bay with their, you know, their superior sword skills. Mm. And then at some point, um, William Marshall, who's sword fighting King John, uh, just stops him and is like, sir, they've surrendered, you know, and that's the guy he's been fighting for a period of time now. Uh So, yeah. Yeah. So he decides to disinherit Robin and make him an outlaw and there's a price on his head. And so him and Marion and Will Scarlet and little John and such go and join with the lost boys in the woods. They have a already set up base of operations. Uh, it struck me at the end that they go off to be communists. <laughs> they're out there they're And then they have the, this closing narration uh, by Kate Blanchett. This slightly communistic, yeah. uh, but is mostly about, we need to, We'll, we'll, it's sequel baiting. It's yeah. like, we're going we're gonna to hit back about against John. And it would have been interesting to see Robin Hood told in two parts. Yeah. Because I, I don't think that's been done before outside of a series. Yeah. Um, another comment thing you kept coming, commenting on as this film progressed was you kept commenting on the music. So what do you, what do you actually make of the music in this one? Well, the music sounds much more authentic ish yeah. to the time than the 80s power ballad we had before. Or even the uh, Central European waltzy sound of the '38 Robin Hood. It's it was good. I liked, I liked it. the music. Uh, I liked the soundtrack of this film, integrated with the film. There's a couple songs in it that was kind of interesting. There were yeah, the one songs on the boat and then the one night in the bar. Those were mm-hmm. really fun. Mm-hmm. But yeah, or uh, not the one night in the bar. The when they get out in the woods that one night. That mm-hmm. was a fun song. Yeah, there were some good songs. Um, but yeah, it was... the, the score is fine, but it's not memorable. Yeah. Well, you kept making fun of it as it went. Mm. I was kind of curious why. Mm. Well, I was just kind of joking about the vaguely Enya-esque quality oh. to it. <laughs> yeah, I thought it fit the context of the story better. I thought this was in terms of integrating the music into the um, storyline that this was probably the best integrated. Mm of the scores, um, but it's not going to be an award-winning score or anything of that nature. Speaking of award-winning, let's see what awards this might have been nominated for. It was nominated for a number of things, but it won basically nothing. Uh, it, won, it won a SAG award for Best Actor. All right. So it was nominated for a bunch of other things and other more minor um, awards, but the SAG was probably its most well-known, so... Mm. Most well-known win. Well, that was actually its only win. It was nominated for a number of other things, but that was its only win. So, Oh, apparently Russell Crowe had grown his hair out for this role. So in the movies Body of Lies and State of Play, he was wearing a wig to cover his long hair. And then right before they started filming, he decided to cut his hair short. Really? So he was wearing wigs in those films. And that essentially for nothing. Uh, there was also at one point Russell Crowe was set to play both Robin Hood and the Sheriff of Nottingham. That would have not worked out very well. That's like the the like Smokey is the Bandit. Yeah, would not have worked. I think those are the only other things worth mentioning. Oh, 
The brown hood worn by Russell Crowe was won by Last Week Tonight with John Oliver show at Russell Crowe's Art of Divorce auction, which was held on April 7, 2018. The hood, along with other memorabilia purchased in the auction, was given to the Anchorage, Alaska Blockbuster Video Store in hopes of attracting customers to keep it open. Sadly, that store was closed in the summer of 2018. Oh, that's funny. So, yeah, I think that's the only thing, other items worth mentioning, so... What are what are your closing thoughts on this? What would you rate it? My closing thoughts on this, I was looking at some of material on it and a line or two from Roger Ebert's review of the film, and I'm paraphrasing uh, that it just, these these films these these incarnations of Robin Hood they just get darker and blander, and I think Robin Hood works better when he's lighter. I thought this was too dark for Robin Hood. Not to say that there's not things in it that I liked, but you don't need to grind Robin Hood through this gritty filter to the extent that they did here. Um, I didn't. I did. I, there were parts of this I liked, and I thought that this that the bulk of the last hour, other than the silliness at the very end, was good. Ish. I'm giving this thing two stars. I would give it a thumbs down. What would you give it on the 10 star scale? Three or a four. Really? That low? Mm-hmm. Hmm. I would give this probably two and a half, three stars on the four star scale. I couldn't get over that first hour. But on the 10 star scale, I'd probably give this a seven star. On IMDb, it gets an aggregate score of a 6.6. Despite liking this, so it's interesting that you mentioned this being dark because I thought this was. Not as dark as the 1991 Robin Hood Prince of Thieves. I thought this was lighter than that ver- that version. It also suffers from being significantly longer. But Robin Hood is much a much lighter figure in that one than he is here. Okay. Um, He's more playful. I think, though, that we were right week one of this, that 1938 might have been the best version of this, um, despite... Uh, better cinematography and other factors being in play. I think 1938 is kind of the best balance of the ones we've seen thus far Mm. so and i i do not have a lot of hope for next week no no you want to tell them what we're doing next week we're going to be seeing the 2018 version of robin hood which had all sorts of problems yeah both before and after its release it was not a success uh but you will get to hear us talk about that in detail momentarily i have a feeling we will both dislike that significantly more than this one yeah so Safe bet. All right, we'll see you momentarily. Welcome back to our fourth and final installment in Robin Hood Month. This is the 2018 Robin Hood starring Taron Edgerton. Kind of to lead off, I just want to give you guys a little bit of background. When As we prepared to watch this movie, uh, Nate had the foresight to look ahead and look at some streaming options. We couldn't really find this for rent at a reasonable, you know, what we thought would be a reasonable price for what we expected out of this. So Nate uh, went ahead and got this, the physical disc. He still gets his discs through. The old through. school Netflix, DVD.com. Yeah. So Nate had the foresight to get the DVD and have it sent to us. And I want to apologize to Nate. Oh, yeah. Because your history will forever be marred by having checked out this disc. Indeed. But not so marred as if we had to pay like 3 or $4 to rent it on Amazon. Uh, I almost, uh, in some ways, I think that would be better because it could be viewed 
more readily as a mistake. Like you had to go to. I have to take that back. It's not available for three and four dollars on Amazon, which is why I decided to rent. It's like thirteen dollar rent. Yeah, yeah, which is or buy ridiculous. Yeah, considering the quality of this movie, um, I guess that leads us into our discussion. Where should we? Uh, where should we start with where this discussion of this begin? movie? It's it's really bad. Um, I was expecting it to be bad. I was expecting it to be probably the worst of the Robin Hoods based on what I'd heard about it. It did make me, to an extent, long for the 2010 Robin Hood. The Russell Crowe version? The Russell Crowe version. At Uh least the final hour and a half of that version. Yeah. This movie didn't never had the same long period of slowness and slow build that that Robin Hood did. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, it, it, it wasn't. You know, good. we just recently watched and recorded an episode on a movie called Rockwell. Mm-hmm. And neither of us liked that movie. Mm-hmm. In fact, you said that movie was going to go right to Sabres. Mm-hmm. I kind of wish we were watching Rockwell again. Yeah. Um, Rockwell looks good by comparison to mm-hmm. this film. I don't know. Do we just straight up start banging on this movie? Or do you want to like give some... <clears throat> do you want to tell them the story? Well, well, what they were trying to do... Is they were trying to, and and that's what you do with a property like Robin Hood, is you need to reinterpret it and you need to try to make it current for the time. And they were trying, perhaps too hard, uh, to do it in this version. Even though it starts out very traditionally, it starts out like the Disney animated Robin Hood with a storybook. And then you have this opening narration, which part of me feels was not the way this was originally intended to start. It feels like the storybook thing was maybe put in in a second or third cut and they put in this this heavy narration giving us a, a lot of background i did notice that one of the production companies in the opening credits was hong kong based oh yeah which i just thought was interesting it made me yeah. mean nothing but see i thought that the speaking of those opening credits i thought that the you know traditional storybook opening combined with the heavy narration i thought that they were just very opposed to each other. Yeah, like well, they're and, and they're very contradictory. One of the first lines the narrator says is, "This isn't a storybook." Yeah, uh, and then he does this like I can't remember what a year it was because they're fudging a lot of the sense of history. This movie basically rejects the sense of history. You you have well, it wants you to feel like it's twelfth century, but they also want to create the excuse to not do anything twelfth century. Uh-huh. Like they have wardrobe that does not even remotely oh, yeah. fit. They have wardrobe that looks like casual wardrobe that Edgerton or, or Jamie Foxx would be wearing in real life. Yeah. Like they just wore their their stuff on the set. Yeah, and yeah, it's they're yeah, it's it's bad. They're trying to create a sense of history while discarding any sense of history mm. simultaneously. They're, I'm not. They're hardly trying to create a sense of history with this thing. It is extremely. Uh, anachronistic. Well, when I say a sense of history, I'm talking like a sense of uh, it being placed in like 12th century England. Mm. Though this barely seems to be set in England, nor, or at least in any semblance of England as we would know it, and at the same time, like, yeah, it's, yeah, this place, this goes a lot of places. So Tom Edgerton is Robin Loxley. He's a wealthy cat, though we never see any of his family. He has a uh, mansion just outside, or castle, just outside of uh, Nottingham, which is later revealed to us to be like the banking center of England, which it was never. And it's huge and urban, and it looks like King's Landing, 
from uh, Game of Thrones. It's really overbuilt. Anyway, he gets drafted to go into the Crusades. Literally drafted. Literally drafted. He gets a letter, a draft notice. He goes to the Crusades, so uh, where he serves in the war in Iraq. And uh, while serving there in the war of Iraq, Iraq veteran Although Robin Although it was Boxley, like Saudi Arabia. It right? is Saudi Arabia, yeah. they say. Uh, he meets Jamie Foxx, who they later decide, uh, we'll call him Little John. Yeah. He does uh, well, first, but, but his little John is the English translation. The English of his translation name. of his name, and he yeah. he appears to be the Morgan Freeman part from uh, Prince of Thieves. Not really. Yeah. Anyway, they're trying to have him consolidate some. Yeah, they, there's a lack of a serious lack of merry men in this movie. I, That's true. I found that I missed the the supporting characters. What are you talking Robin. about? They had a will in this story. They did have a will in this story. Yes. Uh, anyway. Um, he's fighting the Muslims in Arabia, and Jamie Foxx is one of them. Jamie Foxx is a really good swordsman, and he almost kills Robin. And also Bowman. And Bowman. He almost kills Robin, but his hand is chopped off by Sir Guy, Commander Guy Gisborne, uh, who is uh, Robin's commanding officer, uh, doesn't think very highly of Robin. Um, there's a scene where they've captured a bunch of Muslims and they're torturing them and cutting off their heads. And one of them is, uh, little John's son. Yeah. Robin looks at this and anachronistically decides this ain't morally right and tries to step in to stop the execution of the son. He fails, uh, but he's injured and he's sent back home on a hospital ship and he is followed by Jamie Foxx. He's maliciously injured. Yeah. Uh, By Gisborne. Yeah, yeah, and then sent home to on send the home. hospital ship. Yeah, because Gisborne doesn't want to deal with him anymore. And Little John, played by Jamie Foxx, whose actual titled character in this name is Yaya, Yaya. Um, stows away... Stows away for three months on the bottom the of the hospital ship. of the ship, unnoticed. Yeah. Uh, and they get back to England. Uh, Robin gets back to the family castle. Seeds has basically been... Seized by seized, the sheriff of Nottingham. Uh, it's in disrepair, and it's been seized for tax purposes. And he later finds out he was declared dead two years ago. Yes. Uh, this was part of a... He was away for four years. Yeah. And it, about the halfway point, they decided he was dead, even though he wasn't. Yeah. Um, Which was basically just a guy to be able to take his property. Just a guy to take his property, since he wasn't there to defend it. Uh, he has met up with uh, Marion. That's the very beginning of the film, is his romance with Marion, who was, like gonna steal something from him it's not did you catch that i think they were she was there to steal the she horse was there to steal the horse which yeah 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 and she's wearing this really interesting combination where she has a, a kind of a veiled face yeah but um noticeably exposed cleavage yes in this in this outfit she's wearing and and they uh they become hot and heavy pretty quick and uh, robin's none too happy to have to to leave Marion, and so she's the first person that he seeks out when he gets back to England, only to find that she has hooked up with Will, a.k.a. Will Scarlet, a.k.a. Will... Will Tillman. Will Tillman. There's a lot by, of use of character names in this movie from the by, Legends. Um, Jamie Dornan. Jamie Dornan. So there's a lot of use of character names, but not of characters. Yes. Like, this is a name I recognize. This really isn't He's not applied to a character that you recognize. Well, they're going to consolidate characters. There's a lot of character consolidation here. There's yeah. also no Prince John in this movie. Uh, his role is uh, replaced with an evil cardinal played yeah. by F. Murray Abraham. Well, it seems like Prince John is either Prince John is discarded in most of these 
or Guy of Gisborne is yeah. discarded. Yeah, it's like like you, 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 you always have a sheriff. Yeah. And yeah. then you just choose your big bat, baddie if you want your king or you want your sir yeah. guy. Yeah. The uh, sheriff is played by Ben Mendelsohn. Yeah, Ben Mendelsohn is the sheriff of Nottingham. Who was the bad guy in Rogue One. Or yes. one of the bad guys yes. in Rogue One. And he looks like he's the bad guy in Rogue One because he's wearing an outfit. That's very A similar. lot of the time, that's very similar. This film, at various times, can't decide whether it wants to be Robin Hood, Count of Monte Cristo, Star Wars, Ben-Hur. What other ones did you catch? Batman. That's true. Because Little John follows uh, Robin to Nottingham. And uh, at first, Robin thinks, hey, he's here to kill me. But he's not. He's here to recruit uh, Robin in mm-hmm. his fight against uh, his fight for social justice. Yep. And against the war machine that's eating up uh, the Middle East. Yeah. And uh, he basically tells Robin, I want you to Batman. I want you to play your rich playboy, and you don't care about the people, and buddy up to the Sheriff of Nottingham so you can get all the dirt. And then at night, you'll wear your uh, Green Arrow-looking outfit, and you'll go around and you'll steal stuff, and you'll give it back to the poor. The poor, by the way live in a nightmarish post-industrial hellscape called the mines. Yes. That is... Which is apparently a very, very developed mine system because it has, you know, some sort of suspended, you know, bridge system which is capable of supporting wagons and horses. Yes. It has rails. It has numerous Constant levels. explosions of fire to, to remind you that you're in an industrial setting. Well, but let's clarify... These are gas, like propane flames, and explosions of propane flame, not resembling any flame propelled by non-technology in any way, shape, or form. Now, now while Robin was gone, Marion hooked up with with Will. Yes. And they live in Ikea. So there's, there's no, like, walls full walls that separate people's dwellings here. They're just, like, kind of half sets. It's like this is a production of rent. Yeah. Well, it's convenient for later in the movie when they have to run through the mines, you know, because then there's no walls to get in their way. I mean, this film also, like, flat out defies all laws of physics. I mean, they drift a wagon, uh, you know, a horse-drawn wagon at one point. There's, yeah, there's numerous flaunting of the laws of physics, like the uh, the moving of the fire when the Sheriff of Nottingham wants to leave the area, the attack area. The soldiers with their shields just walk up to the fire and push the flames to the side from the center. That's not how fire works. Mm. It's this movie is bad. Yeah, it it's really bad. We really thought it was going to be bad going into it. It was so much worse than either one of us could have comprehended or thought that it would be bad. And you know the thing is that for probably about the first half of it, I was kind of eh. eh. I was there's, there's nothing here. This film but lost me about two minutes into it. Right, like like it wasn't good, but like I, it was just kind of like neutral, like meh. Yeah. About the halfway mark, my axis, uh, some, some, something happened, and all of a sudden I just completely was hating it. Yeah. When they have that big chase scene in the mines... And they you mean they the channel Ben Hur drift the uh, drift the, doing, the yeah, wagons. Uh, they're yeah. doing too fast, too furious on horses. Yep. And it's it's just it's a really ridiculous. Hey, you movie. got your Fast and Furious movies mixed up. That was Tokyo Drift. This was Tokyo Drift. Yeah. Nottingham Drift. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's also a weird political element to well, this film. Before mm-hmm. we move on much further, you said it lost you that far into it. 
I, it I never guess I had was... me, but I went from like passive dislike to like active hatred of the movie. So for me, that happened much earlier. I, I initially said two minutes. To be honest, it was closer to like five minutes. But your heavy-handed introductory narration gave you a reason. It says, "Hey, discard." Um, let me make sure I, I phrase this correctly. It says something along the. It creates an excuse not to give you any backstory. And then it proceeds to give you yeah. backstory. Forget everything you've heard. Uh, and then it gives the sheriff of Nottingham this weird backstory halfway through that makes him almost kind of sympathetic where he was like an orphan kid and he was raised by religious people that used to beat well, him. But even before that, as soon as they say, forget what you know about this story and creates an excuse not to give backstory, then it proceeds to give you backstory. Yeah. Uh-huh. Make up your mind. Either you want to give us backstory or you don't want to give us backstory. Like it's... This movie actively contradicts itself in numerous places, but yeah, you were saying they give guy of get or excuse me, the sheriff of Nottingham, what is supposed I you know what we are assuming is supposed to be a sympathetic backstory. Yeah, and so Robin uh, has he uh, buddy buddies up, and for no apparent reason, uh, have to have, he, he returns from the war, and you know his his home's been seized, he gets it back. But he's instantly like, I want to be your best friend, Sheriff, for well, no apparent reason. The apparent reason is because Yahya tells him... Well, that's the reason, Yeah. but I don't get why anybody buys this. I don't get why the Sheriff buys this. Because it was convenient, and because there's no backstory, and because there's no plot that mm-hmm. follows any reasonable narrative. And, 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 and the Hood, our superhero Batman bad guy, shows up at the same time that Robin, one of the few people with the resources to pull this off, Reemerges, but, and nobody assumes. Hey, man, the timing. But he didn't have the resources. He gained the resources by stealing. Mm-hmm. Remember, the very first thing he does is knock off the the toll, bur- toll bridge, mm-hmm. and that's what gets him his money to donate to the sheriff of Nottingham to get into the, sh- the sheriff's good graces. But the sheriff just assumes he has this money, which he should know that he doesn't have because he's already seized all his assets. But he just got back from the war. He could have won all sorts of riches in the war. Mm-hmm. You know, forget the fact that when Guy of Gisman comes back and realizes it's Robin Hood, he doesn't tell the sheriff that, hey, we sent him home in a hospital ship. He has no riches. Mm-hmm. You know, that doesn't make it, you know, that connection doesn't need mm-hmm. to be made. But it seems as though the sheriff of Nottingham just assumes he brought money home from the war. Mm-hmm. And then there's this political element where um, there's the progressives. Will Tillman is. Will the, Tillman's not the progressive. Will Tillman is the safe centrist liberal. Yeah. Uh, who is trying to organize uh, the poor people at the mines and who eventually is forced into an alliance with the more... It's, it's like party bridge building. He's, he's Joe Biden and uh, Robin Hood is Bernie Sanders. And they have a moment where they get up in front of the people and they're basically at the nominating convention, you yeah. know, holding hands, like, we're on the same side now and we're going to uh, yes. we're gonna fight back against... Uh, um, Against the sheriff of George W. Bush. He looks like George W. Bush. You referenced Trump. The, well, the, the some Trump of the speeches he's that for Sheriff you. of Nottingham gives. Oh, uh, he gives this really isolationist, anti-immigrant speech at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Where he's like, they're going to come they're at our shores and they're going to overrun our church and our resources. And Yeah, it was, it was, it was terrible. Yeah. But it was also reminiscent of Trump. Yeah. But there are no consistent connections throughout this whole thing. The Sheriff of Nottingham could have been four different characters at various points in this movie. Because mm. um, his narrative shifts and changes so much throughout the movie. It's just, it's nonsensical. 
Yeah, it's it's a nonsensical movie. I mean, uh, just those the, making Robin Hood urban. I mean, so much of this is urban. We don't see Sherwood Forest till very late in the movie. And this is another movie. Very late in the movie. What are you talking about? The, the movie's only, over. It couldn't have been any later in the movie yeah. because then the credits roll. Yeah. And all you see is that they ride into Sherwood. Yeah, yeah. And this, like last week's movie, is is a film that teases a never-to-be-made sequel. Yeah. In fact, I was curious because it teases the sequel so heavily that I was curious if there was any chance of the sequel being made. Arguably more than the last one did. Yeah. Oh, it was so heavy-handed here. Much mm. more heavy-handed than the, the last one. Um, this had an estimated budget, according to IMDb, of $100 million. Mm. It's a pretty good budget. You know? I can see that as this film's budget. Yeah. Uh, it's opening weekend domestic. Would you like to guess how much it brought in? I'm going to guess $16 million. $10 million. Oh, wow. Actually, less. It was $9.19 million on it domestically yeah, on its opening that's weekend. That's really bad. It's domestic gross. Would you like to take a stab at its domestic oh, gross? Uh, $36 million. Uh, $30 million. Thir- Why? Well, I keep overestimating. $30,824,000. Mm-hmm. Would you like to make an estimate at its worldwide gross? No. Eighty-six million four hundred eighty-nine thousand. Wow. wow, worldwide. So this definitely took a loss of more than ten million dollars, not including. You know, we always assume that there's a certain amount of advertising. Um, advertising on top of this, IMDb tends to include a certain amount of of advertising money in its estimated, mm-hmm. but it usually seems as though the advertising is still on top of that. But based on its estimated budget, this had to have taken at least a ten million dollar loss. Oh no! Yeah, um, I would say definitely. So I would more say there's a pretty good chance that there won't be a sequel. Oh, there there won't be a sequel. Um, and that makes me feel good on the end. And and I'm glad to report that this film's director Autumn uh, Autumn Otto Bathurst uh, has not made a, another movie. This well, is this his, his single first, right? single directorial credit. He is a television director in Britain. Uh, he directed Peaky Blinders and episodes of that and several other series uh but he was not up to the task here it was there are some some very seriously interesting choices here and this was done through am i right this was done through lionsgate yeah Mm -hmm. you know and we kind of had a discussion as the um previews were rolling that lionsgate tends to be kind of a mixed bag in terms of a studio and this is lionsgate having taken a chance and this chance failed Mm. Um, I think quite miserably. We should talk maybe briefly about a couple uh, people in the cast. I mean, not that there's really standouts. Uh, Eve Hassan plays uh, Marion. Uh, I would say that she is probably the best in this movie. Uh, I don't think she's a really good actress. There's some of the dialogue. I don't think she's a good actress either, but she she's delivers probably the some best in this movie. Awful, li- awful dialogue deliveries, especially early in the film. She is the daughter of Bono. Yeah. Which is kind of interesting, and they like to put her in really strong colors in this film. Yeah, she's wearing scarlet. She's wearing yellow. She stands out from the other cast members that are generally in 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 a gray, with the exception of Friar Tuck, who I also liked, played by Tim Minchin, who is generally in a green. Uh, I determined that he is half Simon Pegg and half Russell Brand, and neither one very effectively, mm-hmm. but still. One of the better things in this movie, I've, which doesn't have a lot to pick from. You're, I think you're being a little generous to Friar Tuck at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this film was so who, bad that... Who do you like more than Friar Tuck in this movie? Marion. Marion, okay. I thought she was the only decent role in this film. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, Edgerton and Fox, they're just kind of there. 
They try yeah. to they try to give. Did the buddy thing work? Did they have buddy chemistry? Not really. No, I mean they didn't have anti chemistry. Oh, but we forgot to gloss over how impressed you were with uh, Jamie Foxx, him his attaching his artificial appendage. Yeah. So when when they cut off his hand, I'm like they're gonna put some kind of cool something in place of his hand. Yeah. Uh, it looks like a thimble. Yeah. They basically cap off his hand. Well, but he heats it up in a fire and then just shoves his oh, arm into it. And and he he re- he he's like ah. Yeah. It you wouldn't go ah if you. You know, Jamie Foxx has performed some decent roles in his career. This is not one of them. Oh. This is a mediocrity. It was uh, it was held back. I guess production of this started in or was announced in 2016. Uh, they planned to release it in March of 2018, but they held it back till November. And when you push something back like that, it's usually usually not a good sign. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what would you do? You have much more you'd like to comment on this film? No, I don't have anything else really to comment on it. Um, how would you rate this film? One star. Um, on the four or ten star on, scale? On the four star scale. On the ten star scale? One or two stars. Um, I'm giving this... Is, can I give this less than one star on a ten star scale? Well, I suppose if you want to. Um, I, I mean, at best, on the ten star scale, I'd give this one star. Um, on the four star scale, I'm going to go ahead and give this zero stars. Gonna give it, not even a half? No. Not even a half star? A full zero. Yeah. This was more painful to watch than anything else we've watched. This was worse than the this Star is, Wars Christmas this is, special. Really? This was harder for you to watch than the Star Wars Christmas special? This lost me, like I said, in the in the opening narration where they said, you know, here's an excuse not to have any backstory, but let us give you the backstory. I was just like, forget it. It also probably didn't help that this was our fourth Robin Hood movie. I don't... I don't think that made any difference. No, I think it still would have, if we had watched it first, this still would have been. Yeah, and I, I mean, agree. I mean, it, I enjoyed our last installment in the in the Robin Hood franchise. Mm. So I was looking, you know, at that point, you could say I was looking forward to something mm. else, um, perhaps something different. So this was just so poorly done. I mean, you you commented at one point while we were watching it. I mean, we had such a rummy commentary on how bad this film was. It kind of made me wish we'd recorded while we were watching it just to record our our reactions to this in real time. Mm. Um, but at one point you commented on why didn't they just go and do a modern yeah. where they just forget all the backstory, forget setting this in mid century, twelfth century. Because England, it, they set it in an urban setting and just basically yeah. do it as Robin Hood and Batman. Yeah. And you said why not do that? I think even if it had been a bad version of that, I would have enjoyed that more. Yeah, because it would have been something different. Because this seemed like it was trying to do both the 12th century England and the modern yeah. Robin Hood superhero it movie wasn't committing. at the same time and failed at both. Mm. Yeah. So I think we all pretty much know where we're going to land on this, but we, we should do our, our rankings yeah. of these four Robin Hoods. I'm sure I think we are going to be in solid agreement on this. And, and we had speculated this would be the case from, uh, from our very one. first one, but uh, I feel that it was a steady digression over the course of the decades as we worked our way through, I would say that my favorite was uh, The Adventures of Robin Hood from 38, followed by Prince of uh, Thieves, then the 2010 Robin Hood, and then this pile of crap. Um, I would change the order of your second and third. 38 was was easily the best. It was the most fun, um, most consistent. Um, I actually like the Russell Crowe Robin Hood better than the Prince of Thieves Robin Hood. 
uh, and this is so far down the scale. Mm -hmm. I don't even want to know if I want to refer to it as number four. Is there any other version of Robin Hood that we could watch to put in ahead of this? I mean, there's the BBC America series, which easily ranks way ahead of this. Mm -hmm. I don't know what other versions of Robin Hood. Oh, there we are. could we could watch or we, and then we discussed possibly doing this in the month is the 73 Disney oh, animated, animated yeah Robin that's a Hood. good one I think I mean it's been a few years since I've seen that um, I'm curious whether that would have ended up as my number two or my number three mm. um, I, I as I mentioned before I like the Russell Crowe version mm. um, I've always got a soft spot in my heart for the Disney animated version yeah. though the Disney animated version is pretty darn close to the 38 Adventures yeah. of Robin yeah Hood. it's very much cribbed from it yeah Quite so, effectively so. Yeah. Any other uh, comments on this movie or Robin Hood Month in general? No, I, uh, this was kind of a fun It experiment. was fun. I Until this week, it was fun. Yeah. Um, I Honestly, I enjoyed watching all of the movies except for this one. There are so many versions of Robin Hood that we could theoretically do another Robin Hood Month. Yeah, I wouldn't be opposed because to that. Because you, you know, you've got the, 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 the silent Robin Hood with uh, Douglas Fairbanks Sr., Disney did a, a live-action Robin Hood in the early 50s. There's Robin and Marion with uh, Audrey Hepburn and Shad and Connery. There's oh, the yeah? 73 Disney animated. There's a lot of television uh, adaptations. There's a heck of a lot of Robin Hood out there. Yeah, maybe in a year or so we'll have to revisit this. But, yeah, it's this is not one to add to your list. Yeah. Um, this was rated PG-13, which might be the only redeeming quality of this film is it wasn't rated R. They might as well have made it rated R. It wouldn't have helped or hurt it at this point. Yeah, I don't really have anything else to say on this. No. Okay. So we ended on a little bit of uh, a, flat a little bit note. of a flat note. We started out rich and we ended up poor. Yeah, we robbed from the rich to give to the poor. Yeah, indeed, <laughs> that's kind of a fitting ending. All right. Well, I'm Rob and I'm Nate, and this is Rob and Nate Record a Podcast. <laughs>